Well, hello, Mountain. Uh, it is good to be with you today. My name is Ethan Magnus. I'm so glad to be with you today. If you're a guest with us today, special welcome to you. Uh, we're in the middle of a great series right now. We're talking about the story. Uh, before I get into it, though, I just got to tell one little story. I hope you don't mind. I love that song we just sang. I really do. I, I just love it. I've loved it ever since I was a little kid. I grew up in the church. That was a song we sang a lot. I love that song. Except when I was a kid, I always had this one confusion. You know, there's that one point where it says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. When I was a kid, I, you know, nobody ever really stopped to tell me what that Ebenezer word meant, and I figured everybody else knew, and so I was too shy to ask. And so, but it kind of sounded German to me. It turns out it's not. It's a Hebrew word. But my, as a kid, it sounded German to me. And you know how you always see pictures of Germans, like with these giant beer steins? And so, anyways, just as a kid, I was sure I knew what that verse meant was, you know, here I raise my, you know, like we're toasting God, hither by thy help I've come, an Ebenezer to you, God. It turns out later I read, it, it's not that at all, an Ebenezer is a pile of rocks. Whenever God would do something in a person's life in the Old Testament, they would build a big pile of rocks up so that every time they would walk by that pile later, they would remember what God has done. But anyways, if it helps you sing that song, here I raise my Ebenezer to you, God. Anyways, that, that has nothing to do with my sermon. I just, we sang that song. I felt like I had to share. Uh, anyways, um, so we're talking about the story. Uh, and if you're, if you're new here today, it is not too late for you to jump in, grab a storybook, get in a story group. We're, we're six weeks in, but we got a long way to go. What we're doing is we're looking at the big story of God from creation to new creation and everywhere in between and thinking about where to our stories fit in with God's story. We started out with creation. God made it good, and it was good. And then we rebelled against God, and it was not good. And then God came to Abraham with a promise for a strategy to fix all that we broke. And it's an amazing promise. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. And then he says this, I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's an incredible promise. He says, I'm going to work especially with you. And if people bless you, I'll bless them. If they curse you, I'll curse them. So that through you, I can bless everybody in the world. And that's just what we've seen unfolding. God has started a nation through this little family. And you know, Jacob, Abraham's grandson, has umpteen gazillion kids. That's a pretty good way to get a nation started. And they go down to Egypt where they're rescued from the famine. And for 400 years, they just make babies and live in Egypt. And they're growing into a nation. And then a pharaoh rises who doesn't remember what Joseph did for the Egyptians. And he gets worried about this people that has now grown into a great nation. And so he enslaves them. And soon, that's not enough. He's more worried about them, and so he starts to kill their children so that they don't grow as a population. And God realizes that it is time to get them out of Egypt, and so God starts an exit strategy. That's act two of the great story. That's where we are right now, exit strategy. The Hebrew word is exodus. God's got to get them out of there. So he sends Moses, and Moses defies the Pharaoh, and Pharaoh lets them go. And then Moses takes them down to Sinai, where we were last week, and they get a new law, and a new covenant, and a new way to worship. And then we get to chapter 6 in the story. And chapter 6 is called Wandering. 
You see, between where they got the law and where they enter the land, they wander. I listened to a sermon by a guy named Kyle Eidelman on this uh, same text. And he described wandering this way. He says, wandering is living in the space between where I started and where I want to be. And I think when you put it that way, a lot of us can connect with what it is to wander. Living in the space between where I started and where I want to be. I think if we pause to give testimony, a lot of us could testify that we are right now wandering. We know when we started and we know where we want to be, but it isn't clear at all to us that we are getting any closer to there. Wandering is like uh, but the space between graduating and getting a job, between dating and getting married, married, between deciding to start a family and actually having children, between having a child and raising them to follow God on their own. Wandering is the space. I've got some friends who, do, who want, are trying to adopt right now. That is an experience of wandering. You commit to the process and sign all the paperwork, and then for some people it's months. But for some people, it's years as you wait for that process to move and finally get a child that you can care for and love and raise in honoring the Lord. Wandering is the space between going into debt and getting out of debt, the space between getting a diagnosis and going into remission, the space between being let go from your job and finding a new one. It's the space between where you started and where you want to be. And the thing we want to ask today is, how do you live while you're wandering? Because we don't like to wander, right? We're in a hurry. We want to get there on time and under budget. We know why the GPS was invented. It's not so you don't get lost. It's so it can predict your arrival time and you can try to beat it right? This, we don't, we're not a people who want to wander. I shared earlier this summer about this shed I've been trying to build this summer. I've been trying to build a shed all year long. No, that's not true. That's not true. I've just been trying to get the permit to build the shed all year long. Now, for the record, since I mentioned this, the people at the offices at Harford County have been amazing. They've been so patient with me. They return every phone call. They answer the phone. They help me when I'm there. But apparently, I am permit application impaired because yet again on Friday, I got another letter of a thing I did wrong, and I got to go back and fix before I build this stupid shed. I'm starting to hate this shed because I started this process in April and I am still stuck between where I started and where I want to be, which is really just a place to put my stupid lawnmower. I don't even want that much. And some of you are wandering in places a lot more serious than sheds and you don't, we don't like this wandering thing. And I don't think the Israelites, Israelites liked it either. Once they were leaving, I expect they were in a hurry to get to the new land that God had for them. And they were in a hurry with good reason. It shouldn't have been that long of a journey. If you've ever heard of this story before, you may have heard of what I've called the wilderness wanderings, which we'll talk about in just a second. And you think, oh my goodness, they had to go all the way from Egypt to Israel. It's 180 miles. That's how far they had to go. Less than 180 miles. That's here to Manhattan. A person in decent shape could hike it in, I don't know, eight days. A person like me could hike it in 20. But still, I could get there. For them, I know they had kids and livestock, so maybe we'll say it should have taken a month or six. But it didn't take that. It takes 40 
years. A 10-day hike takes them 40 years. Now, that's a lot of wandering. Now, for starters, they don't even go the shortest route. When Pharaoh lets them go, God says this, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. We got a little picture that shows you what their initial route looked like. You'll see where they started there in Goshen, in the land of Egypt. They should have gone up and to the right to Canaan. That's where they were headed, but they didn't. They went down and to the right to the tip of the Sinai Peninsula. You know, they're from the get-go. They're heading in the wrong direction. It's not going to take them 10 days if they walk the wrong way, but we'll give them that one, right? I mean, that's strategic, right? If you go straight, you've got to walk through the Philistine countries, and they have powerful armies that might prevent them from getting there. Also, it'll be easy for Pharaoh to track them down if they go directly out. That's the road he would have expected. So, okay, they go the wrong direction. But from there on out, all they face is one delay after another. And if you'll Go on this wandering journey with me. I think we can learn a lot from the delays they face. The first delay they face is the delay for development. This is the delay that we talked about last week. You see, it wasn't enough for God's exit strategy to work. It wasn't enough to get the people out of slavery. God had to get the slavery out of the people. Chapter 6 of the story begins with a verse From Numbers chapter 10, it reads this, In the second month, on the twentieth day, the cloud lifted, and they were on the move from Sinai. Just eleven months and nineteen days after they had arrived. They stayed at the foot of the mountain at Sinai for just twelve days shy of a full year. And it had been a busy year. Now see, look, they were in Egypt for 400 years living under Egyptian law and Egyptian rule with Egyptian masters following Egyptian customs, speaking the Egyptian language. And now God needs a year to rebuild them as a people. They have to learn new laws. They have to learn how to worship their God again in the ways that God expects. They have to appoint new leaders because their leaders had been put down by the Egyptian people. You see, God is apparently in no hurry to get them where they are going until they have become who they need to be. They might have been in a hurry to get where they were going, but God is in no hurry to get them where they're going until they have become who they need to be. Now let me tell you a little secret here. Um, Sometimes it can be hard to figure out how do we learn from the Old Testament Scripture. It's a very different people, it's a very different time, it's a very different culture. This is before Christ has come, so even the way they relate to God through the sacrificial system is very different than how God invites us to relate to God. But here are two things I think we can do with the Old Testament narratives that I find helpful. One, we can pay attention to what we learn about the character of God and how God works with God's people. Now, to be clear, just because God did it in the past doesn't necessarily mean God will do it in the future. But if we see God consistently working in a way, that could be an indication to us of how God might work in our lives. The second thing we can learn is we can watch the people and see how God's people respond to God. And when they respond poorly, we can think to ourselves, okay, I'm not doing that. 
And when they respond well, we can think to ourselves, okay, that's the thing I'm going to do. So what do we learn about God and God's character from this incident? This one-year-long delay at the foot of Mount Sinai, we learn this, that again and again, God will wait sometimes years to let people become who they need to be before he takes them where they need to go. Some of you right now, you know that you are wandering. You have this sense of anticipation. You have a sense that God has called you to that place or called you to that ministry or called you to that life or is leading you in that direction and yet you don't seem to be making progress at the pace you had hoped. It could be that you are in delay so that God can develop you can shape you into the person God needs you to be before he takes you into the place he needs you to go. And I know that's frustrating, but on days that you get tired of waiting, I just want to go, I just want to do. On the days you get tired of waiting as God shapes you into the person you need to be, remember David. Dude was anointed as the rightful king of Israel and didn't sit on a throne for 20 years. Remember Moses, he was raised in Pharaoh's house and he wouldn't lead anything more complicated than a sheep for 40 years in Midian. Remember Jesus, he was the son of God and for 30 years he lived as a carpenter before he was called into the ministry of reconciliation and death that would save us all. It may be that if you're wandering, you need to just wait and let God shape you into the person you are called to be before he takes you to the place you are called to go. So right out the gate, right out the gate, a one-year delay so that God can develop these people. The bad news is the next delay, it's not quite so nice. The next delay these people face is not the delay of development, but the delay for discipline. You see, they didn't have to wander for 39 years in the wilderness. That wasn't God's initial plan. He makes the plan clear because right before they leave Sinai to march to the promised land, God gives them a word of encouragement. Here's what he says. You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev, and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites, and to Lebanon, as far as the great river Euphrates. Look, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to their descendants after them. God says, no more delays. The waiting is over. March to the land, and I will give it to you. But immediately, there's trouble. No, that's not true. It's not immediate. It takes three days. Three days later, they start complaining about all the walking. And there's a fire on the outskirts of camp, and many die. And then a few troublemakers begin to complain that there's no meat, never mind that God is providing bread for them miraculously out of heaven every day so they don't have to look for it and can all keep marching. No, that's not enough. There's no meat, they complain. They would rather be slaves in Egypt and eat the food their slave masters gave them than to follow God in freedom without the pleasures of their slavery. And these troublemakers convince the people that this is a problem and they all begin to grumble against God and God says, great, you want meat, you've got meat. 
all meat, nothing but meat for 30 days. Eat it till you puke. Eat it till you comes running out your noses. You got the meat. And many get sick, and the troublemakers who led God's people astray get struck with a plague and die. Miriam and Aaron resent their brother and his leadership, and they don't like his wife much either. And they say about it, they complain about Moses and his wife, and God defends his leader, and they get sick, and the whole camp has to halt for seven days until God makes them well again. This journey from the mountain of Sinai, where God said, go up and enter the land I've given you, and Kadesh Barnea, where they camped, to spy out the land, that journey, the Bible tells us, was an 11-day journey. And yet for them, it took months because they kept having to stop so God could discipline them and call them back to obedience to him. But that's just the warm-up. That's just establishing the pattern. The big discipline is what comes next. They park at Kadesh Barnea and they send spies out into the land. They're at the southern edge of the promised land and they go out and investigate. This is all good, sound strategy. And the spies come back, 12 spies, one from each tribe. And on, three, on two issues, they all agree. They all agree that the land is fantastic. Grapes and figs and it's amazing. They all agree the people that live there are huge. On the third item, they disagree. Ten of the spies say, we'll never enter the land. We tried to enter this land, they'll kill us all. We would have been better off serving as slaves in Egypt. At least there, we'd die more slowly. And two of them say, no, no, no. This is the land God said he would give us. He didn't say we could take it. He said he would give it to us. We just have to march in and receive the land God has promised to give us. And Moses stands up and says, this is what God commands us. Let's go in and receive the gift of the land God has prepared for us. And the people say, you try to make us march in there, we'll stone you to death, Moses. Moses! The guy who led them out of Egypt parted the Red Sea, made water pop out of a rock, prayed to God, and manna fell from heaven. They say, you lead us there, we'll stone you. Moses and God have a conversation. Options are considered. And eventually God, in keeping with his character, says, okay, I will forgive, but sin has consequences. He announces his plan this way. He says, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked, Moses. Nevertheless, as surely as I live, and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. That's a serious punishment. Forgiveness, they are not cut off from the promise. They still are the bearers of God's promise to through this people bless all nations. But grievous consequences, like their fathers and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers, they too will not see the land because they did not trust their God and obey Him and receive the gift He had for them. It will be their children and grandchildren who will receive the gift that God had been 
preparing. You know, I don't know if you'll pardon a short aside. I wonder, as you've been reading along in the story, or even just as you hear me remind you what we read together, how does all this punishment stuff sit with you? In my small group this week, I expect we spent half of our time, maybe more than half, just talking about this question. What's the deal with all the punishment? When I face this reality, I find myself asking two questions. First of all, I ask myself, what is these people's problem? How faithful does God have to be? How many days in a row does he have to make bread fall from the sky so they can eat it and quails fly along so they can literally grab them out of the air? How often does God have to do that before when God says, I plan to give you this land, you say, awesome, and march right on in? I wonder about these people. But... If the advice I gave before is sound, whenever I wonder about these people, I have to wonder about me. How faithful has God been to me? How often has I seen God honor his promises to me? How faithful has God been to us as a church and as a people? And yet when we face a new challenge, when we face a new question, how quick are we to wonder, I wonder if God can handle this, oh my goodness. How faithful has God been to us, and yet how fickle am I? When a problem comes my way, my first impulse still so often is to think, I bet I can handle that. I can work around that. I don't think I need God on this one. I can take care of this on my own. And I think God could easily say of me like he did of the Israelites, that's it. I'm done with this guy. I'm going to go get me somebody else who will actually obey me twice in a row. And so I wonder about these people and I wonder about me. I read about these punishments. I also wonder about God. What do we learn about the character and nature of God? I was talking with my son, uh, Bryant. He's in the fourth grade, and so they're doing the story, too, up the hill. And he's been reading these texts along. He came to me and he said, um, if punishment by God is meant to teach us something, then how can it work if God kills people? You know, if they're supposed to learn from it, how does it work if they die? And I thought that was a really good question, and uh, so I turned to him and said, look, over there, Oreos, you want some? And that worked really well. No, that's not true. That's not what I did. That's not what I did. I didn't think about it. I didn't think about it, but I didn't do that. No, I said, I said that's a great question. Um, and here, here's what I said to him. Uh, I don't know if this helps you, but I, this is the best I know to say. It's what I think Scripture reveals to us. I said the first thing we've got to remember, and this is different than the way we think, is that that period in God's work, in keeping the promise that he made to Abraham, what God is trying to do is build a nation. God's trying to build a people to stand as a faithful witness to God's providence and God's way and in contrast to every other nation in the world. And so the, the learning that's taking place is not, in this case, at the level of the individual who is punished, but at the nation which experiences these punishments. And it is those who live and those who are the children of the ones who had to wander for 39 years who will bear the witness of what they as a people have learned from God's punishment. That's the first thing I think is relevant. The second thing I said to him is I think that in this text and in these many texts of punishment, we learn something about God and about sin. We learned that sin is a serious problem. And sin matters to God. 
And that rebellion against God has serious consequences because rebellion against God cuts us off from the good plans God has for us. You see, the natural end of life is death. And if our rebellion against God cuts off God's hope to protect us from that natural end, well, then it leads to death. This is what the author of Proverbs says in Proverbs 10, 16. The wages of the righteous is life, but the earnings of the wicked are sin and death. The writer Paul, later in the Bible, in Romans chapter 6, says something similar. He says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Normally when I preach that text, I find myself emphasizing the second half. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Just like Moses and Joshua stood up to say, the gift of God is this land and all those grapes prepared for us. But the cost of making the opposite choice is death. I'll be real, real honest. I was a little embarrassed to discover as I was reflecting on these texts I think part of the reason these punishment texts just don't sit right with me. They just make me uncomfortable. They make me maybe even a little bit embarrassed for God that he's so mean or whatever. I think part of the reason they don't sit right with me is I like to pretend that I live in a universe where sin just isn't that big a deal. Where God responds to my rebellion and basically says, no, no, let's use our inside voices. That's not the way God's people... And then I read these texts, and I discover that isn't the universe I live in. Sin's a big deal. Rebellion has real consequences, because rebellion against God cuts us off from the good things that God wants to give us. These texts make me realize that apart from God's mercy, I'm dead, because that's the natural consequence of sin and rebellion. The same thing applies to the texts we read about these wars that happen. Many times you'll read that the nations that stand against Israel and God's intention to give Israel the land, many of these nations are destroyed. The, the, the whole nation is destroyed. And, and that, again, that's hard stuff. Very challenging. Here's what God says about it in Deuteronomy chapter 9. He says, After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, don't say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, 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 no. It's on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. He says this is God's natural response to rebellion and sin. And so anything else that happens is God's merciful miracle. The last thing I said to Bryant, and this is so important, and I, I don't always do a good job explaining it, so I'm going to give it my best shot. Remember, God is in the middle of keeping a promise, an amazing and profound promise that he made to Abraham. A promise where he said, I will bless those who bless you. And where he said, I will curse those who curse you. So every punishment and every judgment and every time a nation is beaten in a battle, that is God keeping the promise where he says, I will curse those who curse you. 
Those who stand in the way of my purposes for you, Abraham, and your descendants will be cursed. And if God is faithful to keep that part of the promise, as hard as it is, then that means God is at work keeping the last sentence of the promise. And the last sentence of the promise is, and I will through you bless all nations. So when God punishes the Egyptians, that's part of God's promise to bless all nations, including Egyptians. When God punishes the Amorites or the Moabites or those who live in Bashan, that's part of God's promise to bless all nations, including the Amorites, the Moabites, and those who live in Bashan. Now, I do not understand how in God's sovereignty God will be faithful to complete God's promise, but what I do know is every promise I can check, God's been faithful to honor, which lets me trust him that he will honor those promises that lie beyond my sight. I don't know if that helps you make sense of these punishments, but that's what I told Bryant. And it seemed to help him. But we have these punishments. Punishments that are sometimes hard for us to stand, but the consequence in the Israelites' life is clear. For 39 years they must wait and wander until God comes to bring them out of their wandering. Let me just say briefly, this isn't true for all of you, but some of you are here today feeling stuck in your wandering, knowing that God has more for you, knowing that God has a sense of purpose in your life, and yet you feel stuck in a circle, and you're wondering why, and I want to ask you to consider if perhaps you are in a delay of discipline. Not everyone who waits is being disciplined. Not every setback in your life is disciplined. Plenty of the setbacks they faced were from outside evils, oppressing them that God had to protect them for. But some of us are stuck wandering because we will not repent of our rebellion and let God lead us where he wants us to go. And I just want you to consider that today. We can learn from these people. We can be blessed by their mistakes if we will let God's Spirit use it to wake us up to our rebellion. But eventually they do wake up from their rebellion and their discipline is over. After 39 years, God meets them and says, okay, it's time. So we got a little map. You'll see they're back at Kadesh Barnea. This time they head to the east. They swing around the uh, Dead Sea there. They travel around Edom and through Moab and Bashan and a few other countries there. And they find themselves finally ready on the shores of the Jordan, staring across a muddy river into the land promise God promised to give them. The only thing that separates them are a few dozen feet of water they are almost there and there's one more delay one more delay the delay for decision you see all those people standing there at the edge of the promised land they were children at sinai or they weren't even born at sinai it was their parents at sinai who promised to follow god and receive the blessing of a life in the land and so Moses gathers the people together and says, today you're going to have to make a choice. And he really gets to preaching too. It's an amazing sermon. He always said he wasn't a preacher, but he doesn't do half bad here. Maybe he's had some practice. I don't know. Here's what he says. You ready? He says this, now what I'm commanding you today, it's not too difficult for you. It's not beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven, so you have to ask, who can go get it and bring it to us? It's not across the sea, so you have to reach out 
and bring it to you. No, no, no. The word is very near you. It's on your lips and in your heart so that you may obey it. See, today I set before you life and prosperity or death and destruction. I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, to keep His commands and decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. Oh, but if your heart turns away, and you're not obedient, if you are drawn to worship the other gods of this land, I declare to you today, you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses to you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you might live and your children may live and you may love the Lord your God and listen to His voice and hold fast to Him for the Lord is your life. This is the sermon Moses preaches to them on that day because you see there's one more delay. There's one more obstacle that would end their wandering so they can enter the land that God wants to give them and that's their decision to accept God as God. And you see, we learn about God's character and we learn about God's people when we consider this reality because the same is true for us today. Our God is still Placing as a delay before we can enter into the life God has for us our opportunity to decide. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. I love this text from the Gospel of John. It's being so clear. Not believing doesn't carry some unique punishment. It's just that not believing lets our sin naturally lead us to the natural consequences of our rebellion, which is merely death. But God has made a way. And by trusting in Christ, we are no longer liable for the natural consequences of life, but now we have been given the supernatural consequences, which leads us not to death, but through death, to the land and the life that God has promised for us. I don't often put it this starkly in my preaching. I'm more apt to remind people that when we make a choice for God, we're choosing purpose over meaninglessness, or choosing hope over hopelessness, or joy over despair, or love over hate. But it is also true to say that when we choose God through Jesus Christ, we are choosing life over death. We've been talking about their exit strategy from slavery. Well, this is our exit strategy. This is the exit strategy that God has prepared for us. God who knows full well that the natural consequences of sin and rebellion are death and who has sent His own Son that He might take on Himself 
those consequences so that all who have trusted in God's mercy would not have to bear it. You see, I think that the choice Moses offered them was a real choice. They didn't have to live by God's covenant. Remember, it was only 15 days back to Egypt if they wanted to go back. They're not actually that far away. It was a real choice. And I think some of us are wandering. We are stuck in the delay because we are also facing this real choice. The details aren't exactly the same. If you choose to follow God today, God does not promise you real estate in the Middle East, okay? The details aren't exactly the same. But our choice is just as stark. We can choose to trust our own strength and refuse to depend on God's grace. And this way will just lead naturally as it does for everyone to death. Or we can choose to accept the help and salvation that God offers us in Jesus Christ. We can choose to follow God. And this way leads supernaturally to a life that we do not deserve, but just like the land, a life that God desires to give us. So I don't know why you wander today. Maybe you wander so that God can shape you into the person you need to be before he takes you to the place you need to go. Maybe you wander because you are in rebellion against God. You have said God is your Lord, but you are living just like God is sort of an advisor that you sometimes check in with. And so you are wandering as God disciplines you and calls you back to correction. Or maybe you're wandering because you are standing on the edge of the river and across the water is the life God has for you and God is calling you to decide. I set before you life and death. I set before you hope and destruction. Choose life so that you might live. And when you do, I want to promise you that God will use every minute of your wandering. He will capitalize on every detail of your delay if you will just but allow it. If you would let God at this moment leave your, lead your life even in your wandering and lead your life one day out of your wandering as you choose to follow God, He will not waste one minute of your journey. And so as we pray today, I just ask you, in your wandering, choose to let God lead. Choose the life God offers and trust God. God, to bring you into the promise he's prepared for you. Let me pray for you today. God, you are so good. God, we depend upon your mercy. Oh God, do not waste the years we have wandered, but we are so bold as to ask you to let them do their work to develop us. Call us to repentance so that the discipline may end and we may move forward with the life you have for us. And if we need to, God, I just pray that those who are here who need to make that choice would choose the life of your mercy, the life you long to give us, that we might not stay in the life that leads oh so naturally to death. In the name of Jesus Christ, the one who has died in our place and paid the wages of our sins so that we might leave and live. We pray all these things. Amen.